let's get Bibles into people's hands. If you brought a Bible with you, Titus chapter 2 is where we are. If you did not bring one, we're still in Titus chapter 2. But you need a Bible from the back. So put your hand up nice and high, and the guys in the back will bring a Bible to you. Again, Titus chapter 2. If you don't know where that is, simply uh, ask the person next to you if they seem to know what they're doing. uh, Or look in the table of contents in your Bible. Find your way to Titus chapter 2. Walter, we have one up here as well. And as always, if you need to keep that Bible that you get here, please do so. Today we'll finish chapter 2. Next week, first half of chapter 3. Following week, the second half of chapter 3. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things from your word. Lord, above all things in our life, we want to know you. We want to live from knowing you. We want to operate from knowing you. We want to see the world around us from knowing you. We want to see eternity from knowing you. Lord, everything that we might know you, the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings. So Lord, I pray that uh, today we would know you just a little bit better to understand you, uh, to comprehend you uh, in the depth uh, of your grace and the, the height of your love, Lord, and all of the, the glory that, and the majesty and the power and the sovereignty uh, and the mercy and all of it, Lord, and the justice and the long-suffering and the kindness and the wrath that make you who you are. Lord, shine your light today on this service. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been uh, in Titus for a few weeks. Uh, If you remember back to chapter 1, we talked about why, uh, what Titus' purpose was there in Crete, where he is, this Mediterranean island with many cities, uh, filled with people known for being liars, and lazy gluttons, and savages. Wonderful community. And that's the community that Titus got to minister to. And that's where Paul left him to set in order the things that were lacking. To get all of their ducks in a row, as we've been saying. And so the first thing that he had to do was to establish good leadership. What can you do if the leadership is not good? It's very hard to function well. So Titus established good leadership and the second thing was to establish good teaching what happens if you establish good leadership and good teaching is you have good living and the result of that then is good works so that's kind of a brief little outline good leadership good teaching good living and good works those are the things that that's good isn't it that's it that's good so we looked last week for mother's day at some of the things that uh Uh, Paul had told Titus to do regarding the relationships between the older men and their behavior and the uh, younger men we'll talk about today and older women and younger women. Uh, Just look back quickly at uh, at verse uh, 5. said, you know, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. And the purpose for all this was that the word of God may not be blasphemed. How we live... You are the only gospel, you're the only Bible some people will read. And so what they learn of God, they learn from you. And so uh, if, if the trend was for the women, again being spoken to in this previous section, for the women to um, 
to be very unloving and uncaring toward their husbands. That would not reflect God properly. If they would, had disregarded their children, abandoned their children, didn't care about their children, that would be uh, also um, a, a cause for speaking bad about God. Well, if that's the God that you serve, then that's not a God I want to serve, someone might say, uh, seeing how a, a woman deals with her husband or her children or the way she presents herself or the way she disregards her, her home. Uh, any of those things could cause reason for other people to uh, point fingers and, and really uh, misunderstand. You know, so many times when I preach, like at the soup kitchen, and, and it's a group where there's a certain level here of understanding. I know many of you have been saved for a long time and have a certain level of understanding. And in some places, like the soup kitchen, I go, I don't assume anything. So a lot of what I try to do there is undo misunderstandings of who God is. So many people have learned wrong who God is. And they've learned it because they didn't have good examples in the home or they, you know, their mother, father, if they were there, claimed to be Christians and then lived a whole different way. And so I try to undo these things, and I'm trying to undo them even now as we speak uh, together this morning. So we go from the women to the, uh, to the young men, verse 6. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. End of list. Wait a second. The women had this great big list. I forget how many. I didn't count how many things there were, but the women had all these things. And we get to the guys, and it just says, Tell them to be sober-minded. And then he moves on. Like, wait a second, that's not fair. Well, the ladies will know, the guys can't handle a whole lot at one time, right? So it's just, we're just slow learners. So if we, we'll settle for that, young men. And it's a good one, too. It's a good one. He says, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, to be clear thinking. And, and a great illustration of this, if you know your your Bible a little bit, or you've heard the stories, you've heard the story of the man that was possessed with the legion uh, of demons, or this, the, the demon is called legion because there are many, and uh, they come, Jesus and the disciples come across the Sea of Galilee, and they end up in the Gadarenes, and there's a man who was sort of notorious in the area. He um, wandered around in the cemetery, in the tombs, and he was a wild man. No one could tame him. Every time they'd try to chain him up, he'd bust out of the chains. He was just out of control. He was uncontrollable. And, and so Jesus meets him and casts out the demon into the pigs. The pigs go running off the cliff into the water. And the people from the local town hear what happened. And they come out to see what happened. And as they come out, they see this man who is demon-possessed, a wild man. He used to yell and scream and cut himself. Very interesting application to young men and young women today about the cutting of himself. Um, he would cut himself and cry out. He was obviously a man tormented. And when they come out, guess what they find after he'd had the demon cast out of him, after he'd been ministered to by Jesus? They find him sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. And that's the same word used for the young men, to be in your right. Before, he was a crazy man. He was wide open, untamable, uh, no, no inhibitions. But now, having been touched, ministered to, healed, uh, freed by Jesus, he's now what's called, biblically, same word, in his right mind. He's now sober-minded. What a great word for the young men, isn't it? I think as we, as we even prayed up here for the seniors graduating to go out, young men, uh, God's word to you says to be sober-minded. How does, a, how does a young man become 
sober-minded. He understands the world and himself and his life through the eyes of God. That's what makes you think clearly about stuff. Other, uh, the opposite is to be uh, wild and untamed and out of control and rebellious. So exhort them uh, to be sober-minded. And then we come to, to Titus himself, verse 7. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. So Titus was going to have to not just be a preacher and not just be a pastor, but he was also going to be a what? A pattern. He was going to be a, whether he likes it or not, whether you like it, mom, whether you're comfortable with it, dad, you are going to be a pattern. When I coached soccer for years and years and years, it's so funny. I'd see these kids on the field. I coached, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds. And, and I remember as they were young, you'd, you'd, you'd see the kid, you get to know them a little bit, and then you meet their parents, you go, ah, now I see. Now, now I see where you came from. There's a connection there. There's similarities. And sometimes I'll do that myself. I'll be doing something or saying something, and I go, oh, that was my dad. I just, that thing I just did, the way I said that, that was, not, that was my dad that just said that. Do you see that in yourself? Do you find that for yourself, that you, you see remnants? We become and are patterns. Now, I'm a very visual person i much rather have let me see how it looks and then i'll be able to do it i mean i can read about it my reading comprehension is not always so great but when i see it and that's what i long that's what i want to find someone that can show me how it looks when it's applied show me how it looks to be lived out and for them that was titus's job for the young men titus you yourself would be a pattern for the other young men titus himself being a young man a pattern of good works. Did you read the article recently? That uh, there's two articles actually very similar. Uh, one was about the uh, the female princess in the um, the cartoon movie Brave. What, what was her name? Merida or something like? Yeah, Merida. Um, that's probably said all wrong, but anyway, it's close enough. And they were she was getting Disney was getting criticism because they kind of redrew her and she was a little thinner and was you know a little more revealing dress and so she they got a lot of criticism in Disney. Uh, kind of pulled that and then there was an article on barbie someone did a 3d model of barbie and uh, the criticism again is that barbie set an unrealistic pattern for young women to try to live up to as a matter of fact the the 3d model revealed that barbie is nothing like uh, a real woman her her waist would be 18 inches which is about half the size of a 19 year old um her neck would be nine inches. That's how the, the, her neck compared to the average 15 inches. It would be too skinny to hold her head up. And there were, uh, there's a bunch of other information. But why, why, and people get upset and, and are troubled because they fear that Barbie then becomes for young girls a what? A pattern that they would then model their lives after. And the fear is that that would be a not a, not a healthy, not a realistic pattern physically speaking so titus is called by paul to be a realistic pattern of good works not of musculature or athletic prowess and all those none of those things are wrong in of themselves but what's most important is for the young men to have a pattern to know what it looks like to be sober-minded and to be engaged in good works there's no lack of trouble for young men is there Believe me, I, I'm, God has given me a heart for young men. And, and that's a challenging ministry in these days, especially the 20-somethings. It's a particularly challenging area. And Timothy, or excuse me, Titus is a pattern 
in good works, in doctrine, in his teaching, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. So Titus, the things that you say, don't just speak casually, or don't give your opinions necessarily uh, in terms of when you're teaching. What you say should be able to be scrutinized. And I like this. I like that Paul says to him, integrity. Integrity in teaching. Integrity in your words. And incorruptibility. He can't, you can't corrupt this guy. You can't pay him to preach anything but the truth. Isn't that wonderful? There, there's no, he's not going to have any sort of ability. There's no chink in his armor where, where he would be able to be twisted or manipulated into telling, presenting anything else other than what he knew to be the truth of the word of God. And that he was also going to be a pattern in that. So that if anybody could criticize him, just like Daniel, what could people criticize Daniel for? The only thing they could, they could pin on him was how faithful he was in his devotion to God. And if there's anything they're going to pin on the, Titus, they're not going to be able to analyze it. Where, now, Titus, where, you're teaching this. Where in the world do you see that in God's word? Well, I read a book on it. You know, it was, it was a book. It was popular at the Christian bookstore. Well, show me in the word of God where you find it. Well, I can't. It's not there. See, that would be able to be condemned or, or criticized. So, Titus, just like you told Timothy, preach the word. Just stick to the word of God. You're always safe. Now we move from uh, the young men and Titus to verse 9. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. The word bondservant, um, as much as we'd like to dress it up, it's the word slave. Slavery was uh, very, very common. I've heard uh, the figure that there were six million slaves in ancient Rome. Uh, slavery was a part of their economy and culture in that day. And so one might think as a slave, well, what can I possibly do? I mean, I must, to be effective, now I'm, I'm a slave but I've become a Christian, and so this is being written to the church, is it not? So in the church, there are those that are masters, and there are those that are slaves. You think, we got it tough. I mean, how'd you like to, to work at a big company and have your C the CEO of the company, you work in the mailroom, you know? And there's the CEO of the company, and you teach Bible studies, and there's the CEO there in your class. And then you go to work, and they're the CEO, and you're in the mailroom. It can get pretty awkward, can it, in the body of Christ? And so even in that day, there were masters and slaves both engaged in the body of Christ. And so a slave might say, well, how in the world can I possibly give God glory with my, with my life? I mean, my life's not even my own. I belong to, I'm owned by this family or this person, and what, what can I possibly do? Well, that's exactly what we're talking about. Because you might think, you know, to, in order to really be a servant of God, in order to really be a Christian, I, I'm, I'm, I'm married to this person and they're really holding me back and I really, I need to get divorced so I can be free and so I can really serve the Lord. No. Uh, well, I'm a slave. I need to get free. Hey, if you can get free, then that's fine. But if you can't, then, then you serve where you are. And so he doesn't say, exhort the bond servants to, to run away 
Get out of there. Flee. Get your freedom. Is that what he says? He says, tell the, bond, tell the slaves to be obedient to their own masters. And it's no doubt, I mean, their world was no different than ours, was it? People are people. No matter what generation you live in and no matter where you live, people are people. And it was expected that they'd be stealing paper clips from the office. It's expected that they'd be making copies, uh, their own personal copies on the office machine. It'd be expected that they'd be personal emailing from the work computer. I mean, it was expected that a slave would try to get all he could sort of to get back at the man, you know? We have that attitude sometimes, don't we? Well, I don't get paid enough at this job. They don't treat me, so I'll get what I need. I'll just get it on, on the sly, right? I'll, I'll make up the difference by stealing it or by taking it. Or when he's not looking, I'm going to do what I want. And that, that, that does not present the gospel. You know, you, there's just no, the church is praying for revival, Oh, Lord, bring revival. Revival ain't coming until God's people recognize that we uh, serve a God of humility and sacrifice. That's where it starts. Instead of always saying, we gotta, be, we gotta get out from under this. We need our rights. Is that what Jesus said? I want my rights. He became obedient, didn't he? He humbled himself, became obedient even to the point of death. Any of you guys obeyed to the point of death yet? I'd like to see you raise your hand if you have, right? <laughs> the person next to you can raise it for you. But look, I mean, this is, we're, we've been circling around the runway for years as the church, have we not? I mean, trying to, to figure out what the, the key is. What's the next thing? The key is the same key that's always been to be a yielded people who willingly sacrificed themselves out of obedience to the ultimate suffering servant, Jesus Christ, even to the point of losing our own lives in the process. When the church grabs that, when the church lives that, you will see things change. But that's a hard message, is it not? That's a hard thing to live, is it not? And I'm with you. I don't go, yeah, I got that one. Yeah, I got that one pegged. I'm ready to move on from there. No, we work our whole lives on dying to ourselves. You know, so he tells the, the wives, you know, obedient to your own husbands. He tells the bondservants, obedient to your own masters, not to be, uh, or to be well-pleasing to them in all things. Not answering back, don't, no talking back. Not pilfering, that's the word that means to, um, to set apart some that you're going to take for yourself. You kind of set this aside, that's, I'm going to steal that, I'm going to take that for me. It belongs to my boss belongs to that company i may not like the way they do business but it's still not right for me to steal from them and the slave the the master owned everything if you were a slave and and you had kids they belonged to the master if you had a birthday and someone sent you money that was the master's money if you made something if you were a gifted craftsman it was his now there were some good masters and and the gospel doesn't try to change the nature of the culture in that way but it does seek to bring it under obedience to Christ. So if you're a slave, here's how you operate. If you're a master, here's how you operate. You don't abuse people. You don't take advantage of them. You treat them fairly. You pay them what they deserve. You take good care of them. So not pilfering, but showing good fidelity, being a faithful, obedient 
servant. That's what Jesus was. And that's you, and what does that do? Look at why. That they may adorn, that they, who they, slaves, can adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Now, what does that mean? Or adorn is the, the Greek word cosmeo, where we get the English word. Anybody want to guess at it? Cosmetics. Cosmetics and cosmic, all related to the same root word. So cosmetics is what often is used by women or actors, men and women, in, in movies and TV to uh, adorn themselves. The old word, actually, it really means to arrange. And it would be arranging of jewels in such a way that they were the most beautiful. There's a, there's a good arrangement and there's a, not so, there's a less than good arrangement. You'd want to arrange those things so that they look beautiful in their arrangement. And so when we put on and talk about using makeup, what makeup is, is made to do is to highlight, emphasize, and draw attention to certain parts, uh, particularly of the face. And, and so when the slaves act like this, when they do what's right, it makes the gospel look beautiful. Now, sometimes we work too hard to make the gospel look be- beautiful. You know, we try to, we twist it to make it appealing or, or more palatable. And that's not what we're talking about. You know, we're, we're not talking about God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life kind of stuff. We don't have to change the gospel to make it beautiful. The gospel is beautiful. It, it, but a lot of people only know it in theory. Right? They've read the Bible or they've heard about it. They've heard about this suffering, sacrificial God, Jesus Christ. And when you do the things that you're called to do, they go, now I see it. Now I understand. Now I, that adorns, uh, decorates, or uh, arranges, uh, or draws emphasis to the gospel in a way that it never would. It's one thing to read about it, isn't it, folks? Another thing to see someone actually live it out. Are we together on that? Well, why is this important? Verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. See, this is why this is, why this is the instruction to Titus, because God's grace, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the grace of God. The grace of God that is exhibited through a slave to his owner. The grace of God that's exhibited uh, through a wife to her husband. The grace of God that's exhibited through a le- in leadership toward the congregation. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It's not been hidden or not been just in one area. It's the grace of God that brings salvation. What is the grace of God that brings salvation? Grace costs the giver everything. Do you know that? Grace costs the giver everything and the recipient nothing. That's why grace is such a hard concept for the church. We, we struggle with grace. Because grace isn't fair, is it? Grace costs the giver everything and the recipient nothing. And the grace of God was revealed to all men where? On the cross. Where Jesus humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death. Uh, the most humiliating death. We say, well, the job I'm in is humiliating. Jesus, Jesus understands that. He understands exactly what you're going through. And there, look, this is, this is gospel college level. This is not, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. That's wonderful and that's true. But, uh, you know, as we move on and we really want to see 
How many of you have prayed for revival? How many have prayed for God to do it, make a change in our community? But start with them. <laughs> make a ch- change things, God, but start with those people over there. Change things, God, and start with me. Start with grace in my life. So he says that this is why, because the grace of God, it's, it's not your works that have brought salvation. You needed something you could not obtain for yourself, and God gave it to you. And it cost Jesus Christ his life. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. Grace is a great teacher. Now, what would, what would you think, before you read the rest, what do you think grace teaches us? Here's what I know most people think. Most people think grace teaches us that we can live any way we want. Grace teaches us, oh, because, because I was gracious, then I'm going to get taken advantage of. I mean, the Apostle Paul continues uh, to wrestle with this in his ministry because he comes and he says, hey, we're not under the law, but under grace. We're not bound by this set of rules anymore. We're under grace. We're not judged, condemned by the law. We're under grace. But Paul, how can you tell people they're under grace? They're never going to get, they're going to live any way they want. Oh my, my goodness, Paul, you're going to cause a riot. You're going to cause people to just go crazy if you just tell them you've got, you got to give people laws and law so that they know how to live. Hey, the law is for unrighteous people that, that don't know the Lord, that aren't filled with the Spirit. That's true. But if you tell people in the church, well, they're, not, they're not under the law, then it's going to create big problems. And that's what Paul constantly has to deal with. And the concept is wrong, and here's why. Here's what the grace of God teaches us. Look what it says, that the grace of God appears, has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. The first thing grace teaches me, because we have a tendency to take advantage of grace, don't we? When someone gives us grace, we figure, well, we can take more. Well, they don't really care, so, yeah, I'm not going to, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, does it not? And so when you're gracious, you're not always the squeaky wheel. When you don't pin people down to this or that, when you live a gracious life, it gives people freedom. And what do they often do with freedom? They abuse it. They abuse the, they take advantage People take advantage of graciousness. We do it with God. We do it with each other. And that's just the, that's the difficult thing again. Because we go, oh, grace must not work. Grace works for the people that get it. Because the root, same root word in grace is also the root word of the word gratitude. Right? They're connected. Great. People that understand grace are filled with gratitude. And gratitude changes me. Gratitude changes the way I deal with, with you who've been gracious to me. This is the, it's gratitude for our salvation that makes us want to please God so much. I'm so, you ever had someone you did, did just blew your socks off with, with how kind they were to you? And you just want to repay them or you just want to do something? You know, and, and they say, no, no, I don't want it. It was free. Oh, well, thank you. That's so kind. And, and it just... It brings out something. So rather than stepping on them, or this, this says, um, rather, than, uh, getting, rather than using God's grace to get involved and continue to pursue what kind of lusts? Worldly lusts. You know, things that are just centered on this world. We just have a, a tendency to focus and desire the things that are rooted in this world. And I love, we've talked about this at our house a lot of times. Anything that's rooted in this world, just put on it the label, temporary. Just put it on your car, 
put on your house, put on your golf clubs, put on your boat, whatever, just temporary. And we can pursue, but deny, instead, grace teaches us that I don't want to live for those things. I don't want to get hung up with the worldly lust, the things that are going to ultimately leave me empty uh, at the time I meet the Lord. But instead, grace teaches us that we should deny those things and we should live how? Soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. There you go. It's really, uh, God's word is so simple, isn't it? God's word, this is what grace teaches me, that if I want to please the Lord and I want to honor him and I want to demonstrate my gratitude, then what I will do is live soberly and righteously, just doing what's right. I just want to do what's right. If I'm a slave, I want to do what's right. If I'm a husband, I want to do what's right. Even if people are doing wrong to me, that doesn't change my integrity. Are, are, Are we people of integrity? Are we? Are we people that do what's right because it's right? That we should live soberly, righteously, righteously and godly in the present age, which is somewhat ungodly, is it not? So this is going to make us different. And if, if you're not okay with being different, this might be hard. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 12 leads into verse 13. So we're living this way right now. Uh, and if this was all we live for, is this, if all of our uh, glory, so to speak, or if all of our reward was going to be here, that would be tough. But we know that it's not all about here. Verse 13 says, looking for the blessed hope. Is the slave's hope that someday his master is going to go, you know what, you're awesome, thank you. Is the, is the mom's hope that someday her children are going to recognize all the, the sacrifice she made? Well, yeah. <laughs> that is a, it, we do hope that, but does that always happen? No. Sometimes the kids never say thank you. Is the, is the dad's hope that the family will recognize the sacrifices he's made? We'd love that, but it doesn't always happen. Here's our, the blessed hope. We look for the blessed hope, and it's connected. They are the, one and the same thing, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're living for. Man, it could be today. It could be today. By the way, our great God and Savior, the rule, the rule in Greek says those are one and the same. So who is our great God? Jesus. Who is our Savior? Jesus. So those that struggle with understanding uh, the Trinity, this is a great verse to prove out the Trinity, that, or that at least that Jesus is God. The, you know, the, the biblical instruction for us is to be like people whose house is going to get robbed. And you know, if you've ever had your house robbed, you, know, you feel so violated. And if you knew it was going to happen, and if I told you, hey, tonight... At about 3 a.m., someone's coming to break into your house and steal your stuff. So what would you do? You'd, you'd set the alarm for two. You'd get up, you know, get whatever you needed to protect. You'd lock, make sure the doors were all locked. You'd have 911 ready to die on the speed dial, dial on the speed dial. And you'd be ready, right? Would you not be ready? If you knew. If you knew that you knew that, you knew that your house was going to be robbed. You got some stuff you like. Come on, you're attached to it. Admit it, you don't want anybody else taking your stuff. That's my stuff. I work for that stuff. So a a person that knows when the thief is coming would be ready. But Jesus is smarter than that. You know, parents, if you go away for the weekend, you leave your teenage kids at home, do that. Don't tell them when you're coming home. Don't say, we'll be back Saturday night at 11. Don't do that. Let them guess. 
Let them worry. Then they're not tempted. You know, I remember growing up in high school, there's always that tempted, you know, you hear so-and-so's parents are going out of town and then they're planning some party or something like that. And, you know, don't tell them when you're coming back because then they have to live wondering, like if they decide to do something that, that they know you wouldn't approve of, they have to worry if you're going to show up at the door. And that's so smart. I like that. See, that's what Jesus did. He didn't say when he's coming back. So instead of saying, hey, the thief's coming at this time, so we'd be ready at that time, we have to be ready when? All the time. We have to live ready and live in in hope of that expectation like a, a military man gone overseas and his family doesn't know when he's coming back and they just wait for him to return. Just waiting and hoping that, that today might be the day when Jesus comes back. Our great God, our mega God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, and that's what he did, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And what a, what a sentence by the Apostle Paul. What a sentence crammed with theology. Uh, this is the grace. This is the grace that teaches. The grace that, that Jesus gave himself for us. He became poor so we could become rich. What if you met someone that was penniless and you emptied your bank account and you made a whole a wire transfer of every penny you owned and you put it in their account? You would be then, then become poor and they would become rich. Would you ever do that? We wouldn't, but that's exactly what Jesus did. He emptied himself and took on human form. Why did he do it? I mean, did he just do it for fun? Just do it for kicks? He did it to redeem us. And that's another slave word, uh, to redeem. There was a number of reasons you could become a slave. One of those was if you got into, hopelessly into debt, you could sell yourself into slavery. And then it was the job of your family to pay the price to buy you out of slavery. Before I was saved, I only knew one way. Whatever my little heart told me to do, that's what I did. Whatever my um, un, uh, untaught uh, conscience wanted to do, that's what I did. Whatever I saw other people doing my age, that's what I did. I didn't really think much about, you know, anything about it. Just I did what felt good. I did what felt right. And I was a slave to sin. When sin called, I answered. When addiction called, I said, well, no, I wasn't, that addiction was not an issue of mine. But for many of you, you understand. When the bottle calls, when, when the drugs call, you answer. You are a slave. When sin calls, you answer, that's a slave. And guess what? Christ died not so you could keep being a slave to those things. Not so I could keep doing the stuff that I now regret. Anybody have done some stuff that you regret? We all. And, and remember, you know, parents... Remember that when you're, when you're dealing with your kids, remember you didn't live perfectly either. You did some stuff when you were their age that you regret. So, you know, be gracious. Be gracious to them because we were there once too. But uh, he, that he might buy us out of the slavery from every lawless deed. That uh, speaks of a person who has no, no innate law, who doesn't know right from wrong or doesn't live by that, has no rule in their life. And I like this to purify So he brings us out of slavery, but then what does he do? He purifies, cleans us up. Purge is the word. Uh, 
it's been yard sale month and yard sale week at Lake Monticello, right? Anybody seen yard sales lately? It's yard sales at the churches. And doesn't it feel good to get all your stuff together and kind of put it on the curb and let's just see it go? Just a purging. Does anybody else like that? That feels so good to me. I used to, Helga and I used to love going to the landfill. Just all this stuff that we didn't need that was just trash. Just getting that out of the house, purging it. And there's some stuff in your life that's all, like all that junk in your home that you don't need, that you can't use, that's of no benefit, just taking up space. There's some emotional stuff. And there's some sin stuff that Jesus Christ then, he buys you out of slavery. And then he begins to help you purge your life. And all that feels so good to get rid of that stuff, doesn't it? Anybody got rid of some stuff with the Lord? Anybody still getting rid of some stuff with the Lord? Still, you know, self-centeredness, pride, anger, bitterness. Uh, There's so much, you know, uh, sexual sin, addictions, all of that stuff. When you get, you can't get close to Christ and hold on to that stuff. When he moves in, when he comes to the house, man, he begins to clean it up. And a lot, he takes care of it. And he purifies for himself this unique or special people. You know you're special people? You're different. And what's the mark of these special people? They're zealous for good works. Would that describe us? Are we zealous for the truth? I mean, sometimes Christians get real zealous for the truth. We're all about truth and all about defending the truth and letting people know that we're of the truth. What the world needs again to see that gospel, to adorn that gospel, to make it, to make people see. Uh, I mean, we do some good works, don't we? I mean, at this church, now let me say, you guys are awesome. You do a lot of good works. And I hope that being zealous, just ask yourself on the way home in the car, ask your wife, ask your husband, ask the kids, kids, ask your parents, do you see me as being someone who's zealous for good works? Or, uh, you know what, how about this? Ask this question. What am I zealous for? There's a good question. What do you see? When you think of the word zeal and me, what do you think of? Am I zealous for this? Am I zealous? And then ask, are we zealous to do good in the world we live in? Well, he finishes up by saying to to, uh, Titus, speak these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. So there, if you didn't like what I said today, there, verse 16. Or no, verse 15. Speak these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. This is, this is what God is saying. You know, and, and I know you guys don't come here to, to have your ears tickled. I know you come here to hear the truth. And I've got a lot better things to do than to play church. And so do you, don't we? So if we're, are we in this together? I mean, are we gonna like this? Let's do what the Lord is asking of us. Let's ask ourselves uh, how we're doing at work. We, w- we want people to see, my, my whole goal is to, I want to see God be glorified. That our lights would shine in such a way that God gets glorified. And so I want that to be the mark of my home, my life, our household, and, and I pray that it is yours as well. Amen? Amen. If Phil could uh, come on up here. And as, we, as we've been talking about these things, if there's anything, uh, as we sing this final song for today, um, you know, we're always down, I'm down here. Uh, if there's something you've got to get off your chest, if there's something that's really been holding you back, you want to pray about it, there's something that, that's just going through your mind that just need, need prayer, you know, then 
Satan doesn't want you to be healthy. You know that, right? Satan is, is a, a killer and a destroyer. He doesn't want to see you do well. I, the Lord, want to see you do well. And to be healthy and whole. What does this have to do with my life? You know, I got bills to pay. I got practices to get to. I got, you know, my, my parents are getting older. I got to make decisions about this. It has everything to do with every other aspect of your life. This is where it starts. What you know about God, what you know about the world, are you living in darkness or light? If you'd like to move from darkness into light, then come on up and let's pray for you. Amen?